listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. It's so nice to have you here today. I don't know about you, but the holidays are just flying by and the year is going so fast. Anyway, we are in this season of Hanukkah and it's a complicated time. Jews have been celebrating this festival of freedom and of miracles. There's lots of light with candles, but it's also a dark time. There is unrest in Israel and Palestine. So how do you deal with the pain and the sadness of war and still acknowledge a very special time of the year? I reached out to a friend to find out. Dove Welker is a proud Jew who is regional director of the American Jewish Committee in Atlanta. And I caught Dove, as usual, on the run, this time in the car, headed to the office. You know, Hanukkah is always an interesting holiday uh, to celebrate because it takes on a life of its own in terms of this sort of idea about Jewish pride. You know, one of the one of the true customs and mitzvahs or good deeds of Hanukkah is putting your is your lit menorah in the window so that everyone can see. And one of the challenges at this time is I've had a number of folks say to me, I don't feel comfortable putting my menorah at my window. I don't feel comfortable putting my Hanukkah decorations out on the outside of my house because of fear of what could potentially happen uh, to my house and to people knowing that I'm Jewish. And so that's one side of this. On the other side of this are all of the public menorah lightings that are taking place throughout the entire state of Georgia, in fact. Um, It is astonishing to me, and in the most beautiful way, that every community is going to have a public, seemingly a public menorah lighting. And so it's juxtaposing those two feelings, one of fear because of the rise of anti-Semitism as we celebrate the holiday, and another is demonstrating the Jewish pride that we have and the importance of the holiday to the whole community. Mm -hmm. What will you be doing this year? Um, So I very proudly will put my Hanukkah menorah uh, in my window and encourage everybody that I know to do so as well. In fact, there's an initiative that I saw online that I believe is called Project Menorah that is asking non-Jews to put a paper Hanukkah menorah in their windows so that they can stand in solidarity with the Jewish community. And it's something that came out of, a, of an incident in Montana 15, 20 years ago where the Hanukkah menorah was desecrated in the city, and the newspaper uh, the next day printed a full-page menorah and asked everyone to put it in their, in their windows as a result. So trying to find these bright lights uh, wherever we can during the holiday. So that is what Dove is doing and thinking about during this Hanukkah season. I don't know about you, but for me, the best way to celebrate a holiday is always through the eyes of a child. Hi, my name is Be'er, and I'm seven years old. Hanukkah is a holiday that you spin the dreidel, you light the Hanukkah, and you eat supernote and latas. I like to spin the dreidel and light light the Hanukkah. I like to also get a lot of gifts. My name is Izzy, and I'm seven years old. 
we do decorations and we put um like we do it downstairs and we put glitter. I like to play dreidel and every every night I play dreidel with my mother and father. Hi, my name is Ahuva. I'm nine years old. Hanukkah is special time where we celebrate the miracle that lasted eight days and the Maccabees winning war. Just like we light the candles, we want to spread more light to the world. You just heard from Izzy, Bayer, and Ahuva, some children in Georgia that are celebrating Hanukkah with their families. to Christmas, the holidays are filled with music, especially jazz music. It might be thanks to Vince Guaraldi's timeless soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas. Remember that? Well, we've got another artist coming to you with a new take on a Christmas classic. Reagan Whiteside is an award-winning contemporary jazz artist and a radio host at WCLK, licensed to Clark Atlanta University. Hi, Reagan. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. So how did jazz music get a hold of you? (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, it has been, it's it's been an interesting journey since growing up. I grew up in a very, I guess you can call it eclectic musical household where everybody was playing anything from Johnny Mathis to Rick James and everybody in between. And so um, with that, I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of music. And once I started playing instruments myself, um, it just seemed like the natural path to go. Although I did take a bit of a detour and uh, went into classical first and then came back around to jazz. But um, yeah, it seems like it was always there (laughs) in a way. Um, It was just always around me. So I guess it was inevitable that I would uh, develop a love for it. Yeah, you started off in classical. Uh, what did you What did. did you play? What did you do? Uh, classical flute. Uh-huh. I um, <laughs> when I first started playing the flute, um, I wanted to go into jazz, and um, my private teacher said, "Oh, oh, that's great. You can do that later. You have to get your foundation mm-hmm. in classical music." And so I was kind of forced into it, but um, I started to like it, and um, I started to get good at it. Started winning competitions and. Um, and I said, OK, well, maybe this is it. So I went on to um, a classical music conservatory with the goal of being in an orchestra or being a classical soloist. And uh, when I got to my senior year, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. My heart isn't really in this. I, I want to do something else. And so um, I went to this little jazz club in uh, Westchester County in New York called the August Blue Light. I'm not sure if it's still there, but um, it was very intimate. And Bob Bob Baldwin and Marion Meadows were performing and I was sitting right up front and I said, oh, my gosh, this is what I want to do. And so um, after the show, I went up to Bob and said, you know, I'm a classical musician, but I want to make the transition into jazz. What advice do you have for me? And um, 
we ended up talking for a good 45 minutes and it was actually the beginning of this very <laughs> like decades long relationship of him being my mentor and um and he actually introduced me to my husband so i mean it was like this jazz just kind of it steered my life mm. so it was um, it's it's one of those things where when i really think about it. It's like, wow, the impact that jazz has had on my life is quite profound. Yeah. Not just with your music, but also, you know, with your love life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind. That's the best yeah. impact. <laughs> <laughs> so you won an award at this recent uh, show for Best Contemporary Artist, and that was mm -hmm. for your song Off the Cuff. What was the vision um, behind the song? First, you know what, first let's hear a piece of that. And then uh, we'll talk on the other side. That song was actually written by my husband, Dennis Johnson. Um, well, he had the track and, and he in, intended the track to be for someone else. And it wasn't actually um, in in the normal style that we work in. And um, and he was actually going to delete it. And I was like, hold on a minute, hold on. And because uh, I was hearing this melody. And um, so I laid down the melody and it came really quickly. I don't know why, because it usually doesn't come that fast. And um, And he says, oh, wait a minute. This could be this could be changed. So he updated the track to match the energy of the melody, and it just kind of came together so quickly. That's why we called it off the cuff because it was like really we had zero intention of really making this a song for the album, but it turned out to be you know a successful tune, and I was really happy with it. Mm -hmm. So you were recognized at the Jazz Music Awards, which really does recognize all kinds of subgenres of jazz with awards and accolades. You won Best Contemporary Jazz Artist. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, you know, I guess this one is kind of near and dear to my heart is um, I was presented an award um, by two musicians who I admire a lot, um, Jasmia Horn and Brandy Younger. Jasmia, as you know, she's um, a Grammy-nominated uh, jazz vocalist, and uh, Brandy Younger is a Grammy-nominated jazz harp player. Mm. And um, we were in the trenches back in our early days um, when our when we were paying our dues, and um, and to have them. Uh, present the award like that, you know, it was like a coming home. It was like a full circle kind of thing. And it was really beautiful and not something that you experience every day. Um, and then also the coming together of the different genres, you know, specifically, you know, the straight ahead versus the um, smooth or contemporary, however you want to do it. But um, 
usually those things are kept separate. And it was just nice to have everything together just to show this is all one huge musical family. And yes, we are definitely interpreting these notes differently. But at the end of the day, it's all jazz. Mm -hmm. So this is the holidays. um, And you are you've got a single that's coming out in time for Christmas. It's your own take on yeah. the little drummer boy, which is such a, a great song. And it's got, it's got such a lot of, uh, it's moody. And I, I just, I love that. Let's hear a little bit of your version. So we're going to play that. little bit about your interpretation of the little drummer boy well when we started the song you know when you're doing a christmas song and especially when it's not the holidays because when you're recording christmas songs it's usually in like july right and uh, (laughs) so it's kind of hard to get into the christmas spirit when it's 90 degrees especially in georgia so um we wanted to make a christmas song that you wouldn't mind listening to throughout the year Mm. so that you know that's why we went with the 60s soul um, kind of take on it. And um, and it's a party tune, you know. So, yeah, it's definitely a holiday song. Little Drummer Boy is, you know, 100% holiday song. But, you know, there's enough other stuff in there to where you're like, hey, you know, I wouldn't mind this in July. Maybe you'll cool me out a little bit. <laughs> right. Uh, so n- not only did you win uh, this Contemporary Artist Award, you're also a 2023 NAACP Image Award nominee. You've had eight consecutive top 10 Billboard Airplay singles. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, your journey, especially in a genre that uh, is still somewhat male-dominated. It's rough. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it's it's. Every single time I walk onto a stage, um, I it feels like I have something to prove, even though um, I don't. I think I have earned my right to be here at this point. But, um, you know, there are a lot of preconceived ideas about female musicians. And so it's like, OK, here we go. You know, they see me coming in, toting my little flute. And they're like, oh, isn't that cute? And then I got to break it out and just wreck shop. So, you know, every single time it's like, oh, okay. Oh, you can't play. Oh, it's like, oh God, I had to prove this again. Come on, y'all wake up. So anyway, (laughs) but um, it is definitely getting better. Um, I'm seeing a lot more uh, female musicians um, in and around the landscape. And it's, it's nice to see. And I, um, I just hope that we all just keep pushing forward so that the the next generation of female musicians can just, you know, take it all the way. 
All right, Reagan Whiteside, you are an incredible jazz musician, host of a jazz radio show, which is on WCLK in Atlanta. You're also winner of the Best Contemporary Jazz Artist Award. And you can catch the award show on GPB TV on January 1st. You can go to gpb.org for more details on that. Uh, and thank you so much, Reagan, for sharing and spending so much time with us. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, just ahead, we are going to talk about gaming in the classroom. That is ahead on George and Play after the break. Listening to Georgia in Play, I'm Leah Fleming. The event you are about to hear about really does give new meaning to the phrase, She Got Game. Girl Gamer is an international festival committed to inclusion and gender equality in esports. And next week, December 13th, Atlanta is hosting the first Girl Gamer Festival in North America. Four teams of women have qualified to play. The action will be live streamed and simulcast on GPB's Twitch. Jihan Johnston McLaughlin is known as the hip-hop tech diva, and she is taking part in the event. PhD researcher, black culture, gaming, HBCU, esports, those are just some of the phrases that pop out on her IG, and she is here. Hi, Jihan. Hello, hello. Oh, happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you, too. So how does a former assistant principal like you get into gaming? It's a, it's very interesting, so interesting. It's all about the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um it was really all about just me looking at how do I take something innovatively creative and implement it within the classroom for all learners to be able to achieve. Uh, there is no structure. There is no um, standards that are set with gaming. Um, so that gives kids the com- comfortable a comfortable and safe space to be able to um, articulate and be able to be creative in a place that they can call their own. Um, but it was also just my son. My son is a gamer at heart. Uh, And he came to me during COVID and was like, mom, I want to be a streamer. And I was like, hmm, how can I make this happen? How can I not only just make you a streamer, but how can I make you an entrepreneur in the same um, faucet? So we created our company and that's what got us here. But just as an educator, I've been able to understand the true meaning of meet students where they are. And that's how we came about to understanding how to implement esports within the educational structure. Mm. So when your son came to you and he was, you know, playing video games, did that ever concern you? You know, I wonder if mothers ever say, you know, put that down. (laughs) No, I was actually opposite. Um, Mm -hmm. It was how I was able to connect with my child um, because I was able to use that in the school settings to connect with them. I was raised in a console household. So Mm -hmm. every Friday night it was gaming night, whether it was a board game, a card game, um, whether it was Uno. Uh, or what it was pulling out Sega Genesis or Super Mario World. We I grew up in a gaming house, so there were no um, cutoff times or any limits. It just allowed us to be able to be more creative. And so as a mom, I was like, okay, I have to allow my son that same freedom. Um, not only is he 
gaming, but he's learning so much. Mm -hmm. He's communicating with different cultures. So he's having that cross-cultural connection. Um, he's able to learn different languages. He learned Mandarin, Chinese, and um, Arabic off of gaming. And he has friends all over the world. So it was something more, and he's the only child. So it brought him the community and the sense of safeness uh, when he was able to log on and interact with people all over the world. Oh, wow. Wow. So you all created um, the company and it really does uh, bring digital awareness to black and brown communities. Why did you want to do that? Uh, I worked at a big tech company and I saw that in the state of Georgia, actually, they had access to esports, but Tri-Cities High School did not. And I just couldn't fathom how a school that shared the same bus parking lot with a predominantly African-American creative arts um, magnet school didn't have access. But we had children in that building helping teachers fix their cell phones. The teachers were gaming with the kids on their breaks, but they didn't have access to esports in the state of Georgia. They didn't even know that it was a varsity sport. Um, and so that's what really opened my eyes to the difference that kids in South Fulton County, the access that they didn't have access to compared to kids in North Fulton County. Ah, I see. So during this um, esports girl gamer event, parents are going to actually have yes. a chance to participate as well. Talk about that. I'm so excited about Girl Gamer Festival. I'm just <laughs> excited about Georgia Game Week. This is a new initiative that we're starting in the state of Georgia from the top one down um, to really just show not only just the economic standpoint of where we sit at in the state of Georgia, of it being the new tech hub of the South, mm -hmm. um, but just understanding the placement that us as women have a place in this industry too. Um, it's majority of a male dominated industry. And so bringing Girl Gamer Festival here in the Atlanta, Georgia is super exciting to just show girls in the state and those that are coming in the power that we have. Um, so at Girl Gamer that morning, we will actually have a breakfast sponsored by the Gamers, where we are encouraging parents to come and be able to talk to subject matter experts within the industry, have those raising questions. We may have those parents that are just like, it's too much screen time for my kids, or, you know, I don't get it. Just explain it to me. Mm -hmm. um, and even for those parents that are actual gamers, this will give a, a opportunity for them to not only see the community, but build a community of which they belong for, not only just as adults, but for their children as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I'm not a mother, but I really don't get it. <laughs> so I'm one of those people. <laughs> Can you explain it? Absolutely. What is it about uh, gaming? I mean, what is this? What is this about? It's the world of magic. Um, it's endless. You have so many different industries. You have so many different parts. So if you all guys, you guys have not seen it, but um, the film and music industry, gaming takes over both of them. It has surpassed both of those industries combined. And so you have different jobs. You have different titles. One of the things that I really love because it really fell into my lap is the fact that you don't have to have a certain technique as long as you bring yourself and you're truly authentic and understand what your unique ability is mm -hmm. and how you can add to this industry. So for myself, for instance, I have a bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism, a master's in education. So I took my skill set and the training and just my love for just innovative technology and have been able to embed myself in here, but then also my skill set of being able to understand how to connect with students, to push students along to the next century that we're entering to is really what put me into this position 
but really I'm able to be that vocal point to show people that you do not have to have a traditional background to be able to get in this. You can be a lawyer, you can be a business major, you can be an accountant and a doctor in the gaming and esports industry, just as long as you are open-minded and able to truly be authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that this also shows that education can be entertaining, um, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Talk about that with you as an educator and then, you know, working with with these young people. Yeah, it's exciting. So I'm, I'm the edu- esports educational specialist here at NASEF. And so it's exciting to bring edutainment is what I call it. So you have both the educational aspect, and you have the entertainment aspect. And to bring those together, like I said, it's a world of magic. You're, you're giving kids that structure, you're giving them the traditional skill set that we usually have in our traditional classrooms, but we're bringing the entertainment. We're actually meeting students where they are. A lot of times as educators, we are teaching to a test or we're teaching to fulfill that test at the end of the year, or the standards that Godot has given us. However, with esports and gaming, we still have those traditional backgrounds, but we're able to ask students, what is it that you wanna do? How can I make your dream of being a sportcaster or a broadcaster or even just a gamer or even a production manager come to life? And with that, we're able to bring that digital world into the classroom. So would I ever thought that in 2023, going into 2024, that kids would be able to talk to people on a gaming system from all over the world, be able to look at the data analytics from behind the scene and teach themselves data science by looking at the algorithm and their views. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I'll, I use this comparison. We are going from a Flintstone world to a Jetson world. We're <laughs> all raised in the Jetsons, if you're like me, like 30 and up. Uh, 38 and up, I'll say that. (laughs) We were all raised in that age to where we wanted to know what it was like to be in the Jetson world. And now that we are here, we have to start moving into that mindset. And that starts for our kids. We have to remember that our kids are the next leaders. They are going to be the next president. They are going to be that next educator in the classroom. So how can we prepare our kids if we are not meeting them where they are? We can all name at least five kids that are playing some type of video game, whether it's mobile, console, or they are showing up like we used to back in the days at a skating rink and playing our arcade game. Um, so we it's important to understand where this industry can actually take students instead of approaching it with a negative mindset. Mm. So you are co-curator of Beatbotics? I am. Okay. I am. Yeah. What is yes. that? It is an edutainment company where we're just doing awareness. We go around, we do workshops, we speak on the importance of education and hip hop and virtual arts and creative arts. Um, but one of the things that I absolutely love is that we're just a part of this ecosystem that we're able to give back and shine light on the importance. One of the things that I love with NACEF is that they allow me to bring my creative ability and juices together with robotics and do things that's not only just educating the youth, but educating educators. So in my position, and I'm speaking on NASEF because NASEF is the leading sponsor behind all a lot of the Game Georgia and Skillshot Media, but what it really, really cultivates is the international gameplay that we are allowing of bringing all arenas, all minds and all kinds together on an international spectrum to really highlight the scholastic esports portion of gaming and esports and showing what kids are doing all over the world. So I spoke earlier on the cross-cultural connection. 
Uh, we want to make sure, I know back in the days I had pen pals and that was a good way to connect with different cultures. And so we are having competitions internationally. A lot of people don't know Dawn Girl Gamer Festival. There will be a live international competition of all women uh, that they're competing on a live stream and will be broadcasted. Um, but we are going to have a live audience right here in Atlanta that will be able to see what the young ladies are bringing to the table um, and how they, what a competitive gamer and professional gamer actually looks like from a woman's lens. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, doing some research uh, for this, I was seeing that there are some um, lots of girl gamers that are actually uh, stars. Oh, absolutely. They're stars on social yes. media. <laughs> like what? Surprising a lot. Uh, we just we're we're part of uh, USA uh, Esports Federation. Um, and so we just sent girl gamers over to Romania and they actually came in second place, <laughs> which I'm super, super excited um, and I'm excited to see what's going to go on at Girl Gamer Festival next week. Uh, we have a we have a big field trip plan for students within the local Atlanta metro area. So from nine until two, students will come. They'll get free lunch. We have a women in gaming and esports panel happening from ten to ten thirty, and then from ten thirty to eleven, we have a black women in gaming and esports panel, um, so that they're able to see not only just themselves on that stage, but be able to reach out and touch the local people within Atlanta that are actually changing the game for the industry. Um, and then the next day, we have esports summit where everybody gathers together, um, industry educators that are coming from all over the world to really see what people are doing in their areas. I'm actually moderating a panel um, on just esports and research because I am a PhD student and research is my heart, but then also the economic power that it has when you're bringing it to the city. So we'll have some guests from Las Vegas, the city of Raleigh and the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia, to really talk about what this means from an impact wise from an economic standpoint. Mm. Well, this is so fascinating, and thank you so much uh, for sharing it with us. Jihan Johnston, McLaughlin, you are uh, going to be taking part of the Girl Gamer Festival, and you can watch the Girl Gamer Festival on GPB's Twitch on December 13th. Thank you so much, Jihan. Thank you. And I'm one of the hosts for Girl Gamer Festival, so that's the most exciting part as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. You heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, it is cold outside. And since we are in this season of giving, we're going to tell you how you can support the homeless. That's ahead on Georgia and Play. Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Last month, Giving Tuesday saw just over $3 billion that was donated to various charities and causes. Now, that is a lot of money, but it was donated by fewer people. About 10% fewer people gave during Giving Tuesday. Several organizations are concerned with that decline in giving, especially uh, during the winter. Ryan Hirsch is executive director of Bigger Vision in Athens. So, Ryan, what does Bigger Vision do? 
first of all, thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Bigger Vision of Athens is a nonprofit um, 501c3 homeless shelter in Athens, Georgia, that serves adults experiencing homelessness. And we do this with two or through two primary programs, one being emergency shelter, um, which provides a bed, two meals, access to shower and laundry, and all the basic necessities for up to 35 people. And then our abundant life program is for um, individuals in homelessness who are either fully employed or perhaps in like a workforce training program, and they're working towards, you know, saving their money. Um, learning skills, and then moving into sustainable housing. Okay. Did you actually see donations during Giving Tuesday? Did people give to Bigger Vision? They did, thankfully. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it uh, our online donations weren't as... Um, weren't as high as that we were hoping, but we, we sent out a fundraising letter, which typically does really well. So we're still seeing money come in from that. Um, and then we had a couple larger donations from local churches, which was really nice. Okay. So financially, how would you uh, how would you say things are going? Do you all have the resources that, that you need to do the work that you're doing right now? Um, you know, we always need more, certainly, because mm-hmm. um, we always have more things that we want to do. So, um, you know, especially with our, our Abundant Life program that I mentioned earlier, wanting to expand that so we can serve more people and um, in more comprehensive ways. So um, we would always love if resources increased in all in all sorts of ways. Yeah, yeah. Has demand for your services increased? Yes, ma'am. Um, they certainly have. We are on track to serve the largest total number of people that our organization has ever served in this year, um, which is, you know, not a good thing. We certainly we, we want to provide services to as many people in need. Um, but big picture, we want to see those numbers go down because we want fewer people in need of these services. Mm. So it is incredibly important that you're meeting people's immediate needs with, you know, a bed, with a roof over their head, two meals a day. How do we work, though, to fix homelessness at the root? That is the big million-dollar question is how do we even fix that uh, so that people won't need your resources? That is a very complex question. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, I think you know, again, if we're looking at big picture stuff, one of the largest or most important things would be increased access to affordable housing. Um, I know it sounds somewhat like a simple, a simple suggestion, but um, if there were just more units available to people um, who are low income or have um, no income and are perhaps living off of Social Security, um, that's a huge part of it, right? So if there's not access to affordable units and there's nowhere for people to live, then that's an issue, right? Doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to see that. And then I would say definitely more consistent access to um, healthcare, both you know for physical issues, physical disabilities, and then of course mental health. Um, but that consistent access, you know, same same physician, even um, going on a regular basis, not missing appointments, things like that, um, and addressing those barriers that for a lot of people are um, part of why they're having such issues accessing stable housing and things like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, better job opportunities. That's that's a huge part of it. There's a lot of work out there, but, you know, the pay doesn't necessarily reflect the cost of living. So um, there's a, there are a lot of areas that we need to make improvements. So it is a complex issue. Um, but I certainly think it's an issue that has a, has a solution, right? So it's not impossible. It's just... Complex. Complex. Yeah. Yeah. 
So tell us about some of the stories, uh, because you you talk to uh, these people that are coming through your doors, needing your services. What are you hearing? Uh, What kinds of stories? What kinds of situations? I mean, for every single individual or, you know, any imaginable situation, there's a story that could um, that could come with it. You know, there are individuals who come to Bigger Vision who perhaps had an accident on the on the job and they lost their work and then, then they lost their medical benefits and they couldn't afford the mortgage. Um, there are individuals that come through the shelter who were maybe maybe they had a marriage that ended and then they mm-hmm. lost that financial support that they might have received from a spouse and the things that come with it. Um, are there individuals who are victims of abuse? Um, and they're just any, you know, it's one of the more interesting things, for lack of a better term, about working at a place like Bigger Vision is you learn quickly how, you know, something like living, becoming homeless, living unsheltered can happen to anybody and how many myriad of millions of different ways people can reach that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are people who come through who do struggle with, um, you know, mental illness. There are people who struggle with substance abuse, and those are significant barriers to success um, that we need more, and we need more services that address those issues, right? So that people can um, work through those barriers and then um, become more stable. But if you could think of a, a potential reason for somebody to be living unsheltered, um, We've, we've probably encountered somebody like that at Bigger Vision. Yeah, yeah. How did you come to be a part of Bigger Vision and, and the executive director? Um, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I actually started as a in graduate school as an intern, um, and then I was hired on to do development, and I did that for a while. And then after the former director moved on, um, they promoted me from development into this role, and that was in um, July of 2022. And... Um, here I am, a quick ascent in a very, very small organization. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. How big is your team? Um, so right now it's me. I have six shelter monitors and um, we have four MSW interns, Master of Social Work interns from the University of Georgia. And then we have three MPA interns from the University of Georgia as well. Um, so I don't know how many that is if you add everybody <laughs> up. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we are, again, we want to grow and expand. And one of the things that we're hoping to be able to do in the future and the near future, I hope, is to hire on like an abundant life program director or something to that effect. The title isn't locked in um, to help, you know, operate that program, run it to the, make it the best thing that it could possibly be. And, um, you know, we're we're definitely wanting to grow in ways that help people more comprehensively. So hopefully we'll be able to add somebody in that way. Um, fingers crossed. Yes, fingers crossed. So what can people do to help out at Bigger Vision? Of course, yeah. So kind of like what you mentioned earlier, um, you know, one of the best ways to support places like Bigger Vision or a local shelter near you would be um, – you know, financially supporting them, supporting the programs that they operate. Um, here at Bigger Vision, we have something called the Bed Sponsorship Program, where people can support the cost of, you know, one individual using this bed for one evening, um, which is really, really cool. And, um, you know, of course, that support helps nonprofits like ours, one, operate today, and then two, plan for the future and expand and try to help people in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, item donations blankets, gloves, scarves, things like that in the wintertime, hygiene products. Um, those are all really, really important because those all get handed out for free. We want to make sure that people have the things they need, meet their basic needs so that they don't have to worry about stuff like that and can 
focus their energy on more important things. Um, and then donating time, right? So volunteering is really, really important and it's really impactful. Um, Bigger Vision would not be able to do the things we do without our volunteers. We, we love them and we need them. Um, and it's, a, I think, a really great way for people, especially if it's like a local shelter in your, you know, in your community um, to interact with a, you know, a part of our population that maybe doesn't get interacted with at least in like a very normal way very often mm -hmm. and to see you know in people that are part of your community that maybe you don't get to speak with very often um and i know that the guests really really love it and um you know it, it's important for them to see that there are people in the community who care about their well-being and want them to thrive so all of those things are, are wonderful ways to support nonprofits like bigger vision mm -hmm. and others mm -hmm. Well, that just sounds like um, such a special mission that you all have. And during this holiday season, what a great way to give, you know, just to give of your time and, and help someone else feel seen and attended to and cared for. So I love what you all are doing. And thank you so much, Ryan, for spending some time with us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciated it. I love speaking with you. We're going to take a quick break and we will bring you more on Georgia in Play. Right. So there are several organizations like Bigger Vision that seeks to help those in need all across Georgia. Joining us now is Pat Frey. Uh, Pat, you are the vice president of Home for Good, which coordinates dozens of organizations' efforts to help homeless Georgians. And uh, we're glad to see you on Zoom. As well, we thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit more about what Home for Good does and what it is. Correct. Home for Good uh, was born out of the mayor's challenge back in 2009, where all the mayors across the country were, were, were tasked with or challenged to come up with a plan to end homelessness in their communities. Out of that came the, 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 the plan to end homelessness, the need for someone to uh, implement, monitor, oversee, and revise that plan as, as the environment changed and, and has needs changed in the community. So out of that, Home for Good was born. Home for Good um, serves uh, Muskogee and Russell counties, meaning we serve Muskogee and Columbus and Russell County in Georgia. We're one of three continuums of care, which is a HUD designation um, that, that crosses state borders. Um, we oversee and coordinate, collaborate, and we think we're the conveners of the providers in our area who are meeting the needs of those experiencing homelessness or those who may be at imminent risk of homelessness. Um, not just housing providers, but all of those mainstream services such as healthcare, employment, education, everything that someone needs to have a stable, successful, upwardly mobile uh, life. Uh, okay. So Home for Good publishes uh, what's called this point in time count comparisons. Uh, and that is very interesting. Talk about uh, what that is and what you all discovered for this year. And yes, thank you. And uh, yes, it's it, actually we're in the planning stages of our point in time count right now for 2024. Um, it's 
the point in town count is is a federally mandated assessment of of what your environment looks like when it comes to those experiencing homelessness in your community. We do a full count in our community, meaning we do all shelters and the unsheltered, meaning those who are living in tents under bridges um, in, in places not meant for human habitation and such. Um, we do this count. Um, the last 10 days of January is, is when we're is the time frame that we're all uh, designated to do it. Um, and so ours will be the 29th and 30th of January 2024. But as you're looking at the comparison, um, we've we've started comparing comparing from 2016 when I joined the organization. Um, I started the, my comparisons from that date forward because we did not change our our, our formulary or how we did the count and those kinds of things. So we, we, we were comparing true apples to apples kind of thing. Um, we saw, if I believe it's in 17 to 18, if you're looking at the comparison, we started seeing the numbers of children go up. Um, and we started talking with some of our service providers, one of which had operated a, a single adult male shelter for over 40 years in our community. Well, their utilization was going down. While we see the numbers of, uh, families with children going up. So we started this conversation of, hey, there are enough beds to house or to shelter those that are in your shelter. So if you moved those to another shelter and used yours for those with children, then we would be able to meet the needs better of uh, everyone in the community. And it took about a year of discussion, but the actually the model changed. So that's just one example of what we do with point in time count is taking that data and looking at it from a holistic point of view. Now we know that we're not capturing everybody on that day or whatever, but we're getting a good snapshot of the same period every year. So we can look at trends and those kind of things. Uh, one of the trends you just mentioned, children, more children yes. are facing experiencing homelessness. What is going on and with that? Incomes have not kept up with cost of rent, inflation. We have seen actually this year. I just did a report um, for for our mayor um, on something he was look, he was doing some research on. We have seen in just in our community a one hundred percent increase in calls for homelessness prevention. These are folks who are behind on their rent. Mm -hmm going to possibly face eviction if they don't get some assistance. And that's just since January of this year, January through October. Uh, in what community? Inflation. The, the inflation is, as far as rents go, we've seen a 40 to 50 percent increase in rent. You know, we just experienced uh, last month uh, Giving Tuesday. So many people were able to give to several organizations. Did you see an increase in any funding uh, or, or gifts uh, come to you, the organizations you support. Uh, we did. We did see. Um, I don't know the, the exact numbers, but mm -hmm. I know that there were there was plenty of people sharing and and and, and encouraging support uh, of organizations throughout our community. Um, and it's it's always it's, it's always nice to see that we're, we're we're taking care of our own folks right here at home. Yeah, yeah. So, what are the immediate needs um, that your that these organizations need? How can people help? Um, really, we're we're having um, coming into this time of the year, you know, we're seeing much more requests for a uh, utility assistance, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's always, always uh, a big deal at this time of the year. And if we can um, help folks with utilities, 
Um, and, 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 and food is always a thing. I know our, our food banks have, um, have experienced a tremendous increase in the number of folks that are coming and, and getting foods at the, at the different giveaways and everything else. But if we, if we have organizations who can help with food and utilities, that frees up money for rent. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, for individuals. So trying to take those little chunks, it doesn't have to be a lot, but a little chunk here and a little chunk here. And if we all, you know, take care of some of these other things, then there's money to, 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 to pay rent and those kinds of things. I think one of the challenges that so many of us uh, face when we are, are thinking about this and we are seeing those that are unhoused in our communities is why can't we fix this problem? Why is there no main solution? You're talking about uh, these mayors that have gotten together with this challenge. And, you know, but yet year after year, we see those unhoused grow, uh, that number grow. So what what is the, the solution? Well, um, in fact, I was just reading an article this morning um, about Germany's having a housing crisis as well. So I don't think this is this is unique to the U.S. I think this is a worldwide dilemma. Um, much of it is we stopped producing housing at the levels that we had once done. And um, our populations continued to grow and our housing stock did not. One of the things that we're working on now um, with our friends at Georgia Tech, we'll be kicking off at the beginning of the year a, a, for a housing market needs assessment that's going to look at Columbus and then the eight county region around Columbus to include our friends over in Alabama and into South Georgia to see based on what our population is, income and those kinds of things, what, what's our stock? What are we short? And then if we're pre projecting out five, 10, 15 and 20 years mm -hmm. based on, you know, the the, the, the trends as, as they've been over the past five, 10, 15 years, what would we need? Um, so that we can start some some planning and and really do some work with our lawmakers, our legislators, um, our developers, our affordable housing developers, and everybody in between, um, to see if we can't really start taking a bite out of out of the lack of affordable housing. All right. Pat Frey, you are the vice president of Home for Good. And uh, thank you so much for sharing this. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. I would love to hear from you. Just say hello and let us know what you think of the show or what we need to be talking about. You can reach out through email. It's askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen at gpb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Chase McGee is senior producer. Special thanks to visiting producer Chelsea Phillips-Tafoya. Mary Lynn Ryan is vice president of news. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are GPB engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.